The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Okay, to start off with the first life lesson that we're going to look at this morning out of uh, Matthew chapter 19, we're talking about marriage, building a relationship on God's divine pattern. So uh, the, the focus is on marriage because that's, as we'll see in the passage, uh, the context and the question that Pharisees are asking Jesus. But I want to also add that this applies to all of our relationships, not only in marriage, but as men and women of God. Um, and that we want to build a relationship and all relationships on God's divine pattern. So beginning of verse 1, Matthew chapter 19, it says, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea uh, beyond the Jordan, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Stop there for just a moment. So Israel, small country the size of the state of New Jersey, and in the north uh, is the Sea of Galilee. And along the shores of the Sea of Galilee are these little fishing villages. One of them is named Capernaum, uh, and that was the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. So it's way up north. Um, and, you know, the fishermen and some of the others that were his disciples. That's where he did the vast majority of his miracles. During, and we're coming to the close of the third year of his ministry. But Jesus would leave northern Israel and come down, especially during the feasts of the Lord, like Passover. He would come down to Judea. Judea is where Jerusalem is. And Jerusalem, of course, is where the temple is. And I think it's important just to note, he didn't just do miracles in the northern part of Israel, but as he would travel with the disciples to the Feast of the Lord in Jerusalem, he brought them around the area of Jerusalem, the holy city of Jerusalem, the temple, and, and so from the north to the south. It was very, very powerful. And he healed many people. And I want to just say that there were many Jewish people who believed in him and followed him and trusted him in his ministry. Now, verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, so they were predominantly around the area of Judea and the temple. Uh, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. You might say, trying to trap him. This is more than they wanted to get into a, a debate. Uh, they wanted to prove that Jesus was not the Messiah. They wanted to trap him in some way and saying to him, is it lawful? Because they're always discussing the law and what does it mean and how does it apply? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? What's interesting, as Jesus now begins to dive into this and, and to explain it, he doesn't just go back to the law, but as we'll see in a moment, he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis, and he brings it all the way back to the beginning. And what God did, so, so Lord, the Lord Jesus brings us into Genesis, and he brings us to the very first marriage that was performed by God the Creator between Adam and his wife Eve. And when God established that first marriage between Adam and Eve, the first man and woman, he reveals what he originally had in mind for man and for woman. 
It's interesting that as you read the story of creation in the first few chapters of Genesis, so on day one, God, you know, he's so unique. He is unlike any other god. Uh, and all the other gods and goddesses, uh, you know, that the other Canaanites and so forth worship, the God of the Hebrews was unique in that he spoke, and it was. He spoke things into existence. In the beginning, God said, let there be light, and there was light. So day one, when God created all kinds of new things in this vast universe, at the end of the day, and God saw that it was good. And then day two, God began creating, speaking more things into the vastness of the universe. And at the end of the day, and it was good. And the third day, and it was good. And then he started zeroing in on this one particular part of the creation, planet Earth, the mountains, and the streams, and the rivers, and the fish, and the, and the creatures, and the animals, and, and it is good. But then finally, on day six, after God creates Adam, man, in his own image and after his own likeness, for the very first time, God says, it is not good. Not that he had made men, but he said, it is not good. Now that I've made man, but we have made Adam after our own image and in our own likeness, it is not good that Adam should be what? Alone. It's not good. The very first thing, and I believe that when God created Adam, can you imagine, he, mankind was created on day six. We're, we're kind of the, the gem of the whole of creation because we're made in his image, and all the other stuff that God made was for Adam, made in the image of God, to enjoy. Can you imagine the first man, the first human being, his eyes popping open with all the explosion of color and creation and all that was before him, it was amazing. And as he sees it, as he hears it, as he smells it, as he tastes it, as he touches it, and, and then God had the animals kind of going before and all these various creatures of all kinds, and he saw them at him and he named them, and he's looking, but there's something missing. And as Adam went through all the various animals, he was looking for something for himself that he did not find. And there was something missing in Adam's life. And I believe that it, God knew that would happen. And if I may put it this way, God set Adam up for disappointment. So that he then said, so Adam's kind of feeling something's not, I'm missing something. He didn't find any compatibility within the animal kingdom. He needed a companion that was equal with him and with whom he could find fulfillment. And so here's what God did. He said, Adam, lay down. And he put Adam to sleep. You know how even in modern times when we, you have a major surgery, how many are glad that they put you to sleep? You, you know, when they saw and they cut and whatever they do, we don't want to know about it. So we go under anesthesia. That's the same thing that God did with Adam. He said, lay down, and he put him under a deep sleep. And then literally from his side, near Adam's heart, God took part of Adam and he formed and created Eve. And then he presented Eve to Adam. And Adam, God set Adam up for Eve. And Eve was made for Adam. And when the two saw each other and they came together, it was the first union that God honored and that God blessed and put it together. And I believe that God sets us up for one another. 
on a, on a human level. He is always working to set you up for a very special person he has in your life. Now, I wanna, if you have a pen or a pencil, I want you to write down this thought. Love desires an object to love. The Bible says God is love. Everything that we, you know or learn about love is God, and everything that is you know about God will be love. And I'm not saying love needs an object, but love desires an object to love. God, therefore, desired to make an image of himself that he could reveal himself to and that he could love, and God made man to love. And then God created Eve out of man to love and that they would love one another. And what's fascinating about this first marriage in the Garden of Eden, in the perfection of paradise, in the rest of the Bible, and especially as we get into the New Testament, the Holy Spirit begins again and again using the illustration of marriage, of all things, to teach us about the relationship between Christ, who is likened to our heavenly bridegroom, and the church, which is his bride. Um, you know, I, I love, you know, the, the whole subject of marriage. I, I do have to say that I have had the honor and privilege of being a pastor to do many, many weddings. And I, I love that. I, I love seeing, uh, you know, the, the young man, I, I'm with him and we're praying with him and the groomsman and everything. He's nervous. And, and then the bride, you go pray with her and all the, you know, bridesmaids and they're all nervous and excited. And then the drama comes and then the music and then she walks down the aisle and to see him see her and her see him is just precious. It's just awesome and amazing. Um, but, but I also, I, I'm going to let you in on a little secret because of the, the weddings that I have. And I, you know I have a weird sense of humor. Is anybody, uh, you with me on that? And occasionally I've had, you know, here this amazing moment, and then the be beauty and the music and everything else. <laughs> and right at the moment, kind of, okay, so the music stops and they're ready to hear from me. And this is what pops into my mind. I want to just say, marriage. <laughs> a dream within a dream. Anyway, I, I digress, but if you know what I'm talking about, you, it's, it's just, it pops into my head sometimes. It shouldn't, but it does. So, just as Eve was taken from the side of Adam, so the church was literally made and born out of the side of Christ. You remember when the spear went up, pierced his side, blood and water flowing out, the very symbols of birth, creation, the bride, the church, and Christ's love for the church is uh, just amazing. He loves the church. He encourages the church. He washes her and cares for the church with the washing of the water of his word. And Christ becomes an example for all husbands to follow. But now the, the Pharisees, you know, they come to trap Jesus with this question. Hey, can we get a divorce for any reason? Because they were into a legal law. And I, I believe that it's important um, that we understand, look, when it says the Pharisees, that doesn't mean all the Pharisees. Some of the Pharisees believed in Jesus, like uh, Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea. Some of them did not. Uh, I, I want to share with you the story. You know, we have a relationship with Israel, the city of Ariel. We've had some Jewish, you know, teenagers come and stay with some of your homes here. We've sent some of our kids to go and be with them and, 
I have a friend up in Northern California, his name is Bruce Johnston, and he has this camp called JH Ranch. So then we send, so we've housed these Jewish kids and they stay with a Christian family and they love them and bless them and then they go up to this Christian camp. And, but they have, you know, their guides who are with them to make sure they're not proselytized in some way. But one time Bruce had all the Jewish kids and they were in the big, what they call the big top and the tent, and they're singing along with all these other young Christians, songs that are basically from the Bible or from the Psalms. And these Jewish kids that are from Israel are in this big top, this, you know, Christian camp, and they start singing along because they got the words, and all of a sudden they start crying and weeping. And then their counselor takes them outside, hey, what's going on? What and they go, I don't know, but when I start singing these songs that are from the Bible and the Psalms, something bursts and opens up in my heart. And, and I don't know what this is, you know, it's very moving. Well, then Bruce got all of the Jewish kids together. Okay, come, you know, he goes, look, I'm going to give you guys an opportunity. Uh, you know, you know, we're Christians and you're Jewish and we honor you, we love you, respect you and all that, but I just want to give you a chance to ask questions. Does anybody have any, you know, whatever you want to ask me, go ahead and ask me. So one of the little guys pops his hand up and he goes, okay, look, you've been telling us all this stuff about Jesus and everything. He goes, but I got a question. Why do so many Gentiles believe that Jesus is the Messiah? And Bruce said that as he looked at him and heard the question, he said immediately he felt like the Spirit of the Lord came upon him to give him an answer. You know, where Jesus said, just open your mouth and I will fill it and give you the answer right at that moment. So here was the answer that Bruce gave to this Jewish kid with all the other Jewish kids there. He says, the reason, he goes, there's a lot of us Christians. And they go, yeah, we know. I mean, we're Jewish, we're, we're, we're a minority. But Bruce goes, there's two and a half billion of us around the world. And two and a half billion, you know, of a, a lot of Gentiles who believe. And here's the reason we believe Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, because you guys told us he was the guy. And the kid said, excuse me, I, I don't know, what do you mean? He goes, Bruce said, well, look, you, you probably haven't read the New Testament, but it's all written by Jews. And Jesus was Jewish, and all his disciples were Jews. And 2,000 years ago, there were a bunch of Jews who looked at Jesus and said, he's the guy. So the two and a half billion Gentiles that are here today called Christians are with the Jews who said he's the guy. Some of them said he's not the guy. Some of them said he is the guy. The two and a half billion of us are with the Jews who said he's the guy. <laughs> you like that? That's what, and 2,000 years later, that's, he's the guy. And we're with those Jews who say he is the guy. Now, the disciples uh, or the Pharisees had, you know, this whole thing about marriage and divorce, which was allowed, and, and they're saying, can you get a divorce for any reason? I want you to look at the next few verses, four through six. I want you to write this down because love is a choice, not a feeling. Would you say that out loud with me? Love is a choice not a feeling. Verse 4, and he answered and he said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let 
not man separate. So going to the very, very beginning, since the beginning, God established that the marriage of Adam and Eve, it is a divinely appointed union. Um, it's literally something that God did. It is also, secondly, a physical union. And God's uh, design, He made it this way physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. It's a union. The two become one flesh. By the way, two very different people from one another are attracted together to make one new person. So God designed it. It's a physical union. And thirdly, it's meant to be a permanent union. God makes two one. Now, if I may say this, because you're thinking, wait, so, you know, there's Adam is a person and Eve is a person. But when they come together and that literally physical union and the union that is expressed even in the physical intimacy, and when they come together and experience that physical intimacy of oneness, they create life, and now a baby is born. So in a sense now, you have not only a father and a mother, but then a child. It's almost like God is mirroring the trinity of himself, a father and a son and the Holy Spirit. And yet they're one. There's a oneness to it all. Um, I love this scripture. 1 Corinthians 13 is a great chapter in the New Testament about love. It's read, of course, at many, many wedding ceremonies and describing love. It goes like this. Let's read it out loud. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Doesn't love sound like God? God is love. And love is everything that God is. You could say God always protects, God trusts, God hopes, God perseveres, God never fails. Love is more than a word. Love is more than a feeling. Now, I want to say this. Yes, there are feelings in love. But it doesn't start there. It begins with a choice, and making the right choice flows into the feelings that come. It's a commitment. Love never, never, never gives up. Love always endures no matter what. I also want to say love is not stumbled upon. Love is built. And it's never too late to build a love that will last, a lasting love. You know, I think it's funny the way our modern culture talks about love. Even, you know, people talk about, oh, I fell in love, as if love was a ditch that you trip and you stumble into. And then I fell out of love. Oh, I tripped and I fell out of it. Love is, is not a ditch. It's not something that you fall into. It's not something that you fall out of. Love is a choice. And the feelings will come and they will flow out of it. When we choose Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are saved because we choose that He is who He claimed to be. He has the power He claimed to have. In a few weeks, we're going to, you know, do Easter. And, and I do have different kinds of invitations. Um, on Easter, we do a, you know, stand up and have them come publicly and forward. Jesus said those that He called, He called publicly. But we do it differently on communion, if you've been here at a communion. 
Uh, I don't have them get up and walk forward because they've got some bread and they've got a cup, and you can pray where you are to receive Christ. But But the public part is when you say with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, and we explain this is something, and many people get saved while they're taking communion. But, but when we have them come forward an altar call, like we will do um, for Easter, and I look into the faces of the people, it's, it's a beautiful and a precious thing. I, I have to tell you, to see the faces of those who are just now getting saved or born again or receiving the gift of life. And I look on some of them, and they're, they're some that are very emotional, and, you know, tears are just streaming down their cheeks. And there are others that kind of got their hands in their pockets, and they're going, what in the world? Why am I standing up here? You know, th- there's not emotion, but they heard the gospel. They made a choice. And I like to try to tell them, look, you're saved not because you feel emotional. Some of you feel emotional, uh, but others of you may feel no emotion. You just heard, and you made a choice to accept Christ. You're saved by making that choice. You may be emotional later. You probably will be. But the feelings follow the right choice. And it's the same way in marriage. And I want to just say and insert here, by the way, as I'm talking about marriage and relationships and and the details of that, um, I I want to say this. I realize there are some of you that, you know, have been married, you've gone through a divorce, some of you are single. uh, you, You know, I want to just say this. Number one, Um, Whatever is uh, from before and from the past, and you are in Christ, I want to say praise God. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and we all can be washed and cleansed in the blood. Can I hear an amen on that? And then secondly, I want to just say, so what, what we hear now, what we listen to today, let's receive it as a word today from the word, from Jesus, describing marriage and relationships and what that commitment means so that now with understanding, we come into agreement with the heart of the Lord for what marriage is and for what it is to be. By the way, for those of you that are single, um, you can take all of these applications. You're married to Christ, as I said. Uh, The church is the bride. So you're in a commitment and in a walk of intimacy with the Lord. So make application. And in all our relationships, these principles apply. Marriage in our godly relationships with brothers and sisters, in our personal walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. So it applies to all of us. So I want to look at verses 7 through 10 uh, real quick as Jesus goes on from there. After describing in the beginning, it was not so. And now he drills down to a deeper level. And so then they said to him, here's the follow-up question. There's always a follow-up question. Well, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away. The first thing I want you to note is the word, that word command. Um, you could circle it because the law of Moses does not command that you have to divorce under certain circumstances. It's not a command. It's a permission. It's an allowance. You don't have to take it. You don't have to use it. God may do something different. He may bring healing. He may bring restoration. But there was an allowance. And then in verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you, he didn't command you, he permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, 
and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And his disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to get married at all. So they're like, wow, Lord, that's, that's, a, that's a heavy one. Um, so here's what I want uh, to, to say. Making a covenant commitment. 2,000 years ago, there were, there were two camps, two schools of thought, how to interpret the law of Moses on divorce. And there was one side that was extremely lenient. They said for any, literally any reason. One morning you could wake up and your wife burns your toast and you say, that's it. You write her a little bill of divorcement and it's over. And they said that, you know, for any displeasure that, you know, you could do that. And then there was another side that said, no, only for the most extreme cases or infidelity and that breaks the bond or whatever. So where would Jesus land in this? And so Jesus is coming in and he's basically saying, look, this was something that was allowed or permitted, but for only that kind of radical, you know, uh, breaking of the vows. So the idea of a commitment, Jesus is saying marriage is like your commitment to the Lord. It's a deep one. It's a serious one. Don't just make a commitment, make a covenant commitment. Now, why do we make commitments in the first place? Like I just made a commitment uh, to fast and to pray for 40 days. The reason you make a commitment is for those 40 days, you know that if you just went according to your feelings, I don't. I don't like fasting. I don't like fasting sweets. Can I hear an amen out there? <laughs> but I made a commitment to not, you know, eat sweets for 40 days and to pray when I have those cravings and go deeper with the Lord and to seek him. So the idea of a commitment that you make to another person is I realize there's going to be times that I don't like what I've agreed to and I may not feel like it. I may not want to do it. I may want to chuck it out the window, but I made a commitment, and therefore my feelings have to come into alignment with the choice that I made. How many of you are parents and you got kids? All right, put your hands down. How many of you would, what would you think of this? If you went home today, you told your kids, okay, look, for the next year, I want you kids to do whatever you want based on how you feel. If you don't feel like brushing your teeth, you don't have to. Whatever. How many... How, would that be chaos or what, right? Be crazy. The whole point of being a parent is, yes, you're going to make your bed. Yes, you're going to brush your teeth. Yes, you're going to do your homework. I really don't care how you feel about it because you need to do it. It's a commitment. It's part of growing up. So also, when you make a commitment before God, before a family, before two or three witnesses to another person, you're making a Commitment. The whole point of a commitment is there's times we don't like what we're doing, but because we've made a commitment, we follow through. So I want to put it in as simple, blunt, and direct from the word of what Jesus said now to apply to marriage. In your marriages, as God's children, sons, and daughters, that commitment that you are making to the other person, the vows that you made and shared on the day that you got married, is, means this. You basically have to throw divorce out the window. It's done. It's not an option. Um, I, I know this story uh, by Anne Graham, Billy Graham's daughter, and her famous parents, Billy Graham 
and Ruth Graham, and they're always following Billy and, you know, asking him, you know, the, the, the uh, reporters questions, and what about your marriage? And, and his wife, Ruth, was very honest about, you know, the disagreements and different things like that. And so one time they kind of all had her and the microphones are all in front of her. And they said, so Ruth, have you, have you ever thought of divorcing Billy from these battles and fights that you've said? And she goes, divorce? Never. She goes, murder a few times, but never <laughs> divorce. She was honest about her feelings and how, you know, that, that kind of thing happens. So I want to share with you a few things, you know, that, um, that have come out of my own marriage and what I have learned over these years. Uh, you know, briefly to tell you the story of when I met my wife, I was on my way to um, a Bible school, and I came, I was part of the North Park Theater, and I kind of was my last Sunday before I was going up to Bible school, felt God's call in my life. And at the end of the church, you know, my wife, I, I didn't know who she was, but this beautiful, I thought she was an angel walking a little bit early out of church. I was so distracted, and I saw her, and I saw her hair kind of swirling around in slow motion as she turned toward my direction with hundreds of other people. I thought her eyes were batting looking at me, and I was like, bing, you know, like the arrow pierced me, and I was like, oh my gosh. And then there's like that hundreds of people, where did that girl go? And I'm leaving to go up to Bible school. Um, you know, uh, so I walk around the corner and I notice she's in the bookstore working behind the counter. So suddenly I needed books really bad. So I went into the bookstore, <laughs> but I was too nervous and shy to say, hi, what's your name? Da, 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 da. And so anyway, I left. I was like, oh man, I can't believe I didn't introduce myself. And then I pack up and I leave and I go up to the Twin Peaks where the, I'm at the Calvary Chapel Bible College and there's about 40-ish students that are there. And the first meeting, we're all coming together, and she walks through the, she's at the Bible college. She said, there's a God in heaven, yes. <laughs> so then, you know, we develop a relationship, we fall in love, and literally by the end of Bible college, I, I feel like she's, I want her to be my wife, and I gather up the courage to ask her, will you marry me? And when I gather, by the way, girls, it's, it takes a lot of courage, because you could really be crushed, and so I'm like, will you marry? I'm in love with you. Will you marry me? And she started laughing in my face. Oh my gosh, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. I go, why are you laughing? And she goes, do you know what day it is? I was clueless. I asked her to marry me on April 1st. I go, no, 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 no. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that. I, no, I'm serious, you know. So anyway. She finally was convinced and said yes, and we got married. But here, here's some of the things that I, that I have learned. Number one, uh, in marriage, you have to appreciate your differences. Um, I want to just say opposites attract. Vicki and I are polar opposites in many, many ways. <laughs> I know that in modern times, you know, now with social media, they've got all these social media sites and how to date and find your person, and it's all about compatibility, and I want them to be, you know, com compatible. And look, I understand there's certain things that you should be compatible on. Number one, if you're a believer, it should be another believer, things like that. But I think they carry it too far. Uh, they think that the perfect match will be total compa compatibility, and, you know, I call it the compatibility myth. I want to just say, you don't want to be married to someone, you don't want to be married to you. 
You want to be married to someone who is a little different from you. And, and ironically, we're attracted to people who are very different from us. Because just like God set up Adam, so God will set up you. Um, so, you know, for instance, another thing, when Vicky says, I don't have anything to wear, could mean she would like to go shopping. When I say, I don't have anything to wear, it means I need to do some laundry. So there's a difference, you know, between the two ways. Um, I will also say the differences when I was, when we were first married, the first few years, irritated me, bugged me. That was my wife. I fell in love. We get married. And, but there were differences that kind of irritated me. Then I, I was shocked to discover there were things about me that irritated her. How shocking could that be? So what have I had to do? I had to learn to appreciate her difference and her uniqueness. It's kind of like God refining on me and in me. I will say to you this, uh, that, that we got married uh, there in August of 1977, and to this day, the fact that I am a pastor and that I am still married to my wife and in love with her and she with me is the greatest sermon I've ever preached in my life. Can I hear an amen on that? I mean, with the, I could go on with the list. I am, can get hot. She is cold. Uh, I'm, I like to stay up late. She's an early bird. Um, and then even, you know, something as simple as sitting down to watch, you know, a television show or whatever. And we're kind of, you know, clicking through the channels. And, and I'm wondering, where are we going to land? She's got the clicker. Okay, and so then we land on say yes to the dress. And I see her eyes get big, and she's like, oh, what do you, th you know? And, and I'm thinking, I wonder what's on ESPN right now, is really what I'm thinking. So then we, God, what do we do with that? Well, we basically go to the home channel, watch Fixer Upper, where Chip and Joe tear down a house and rebuild it in an hour, you know what I mean? We've had to adjust. So anyway, let me just add this. Appreciate not only your differences, but we have to work on communication. Uh, you know, and, and you have to work at it. Uh, and everybody is different. You actually have to connect. You have to sit down. You have to make eye contact. You have to listen. You have to engage. What are, what, what's going on? Um, and, and it takes time. I, I forget. Um, it, it was only something like how much actual personal engagement that couples have on a daily basis. It, it was less than 10 minutes a day. And that's not good, that's not healthy, uh, that's not right. I, I've shared this before, we, we need to learn how to talk with one, you need to learn how to listen, and then you need to learn how to share, be open and honest. I've shared this before, but I'll share it again at this moment because it's appropriate. They've done studies and men speak approximately 15,000 words on average a day. Women speak on average about 30,000 words a day. And what will happen occasionally is at the end of the day when I finally come home and meet Vicki, I've used up my 15,000 words. She has saved maybe her 30,000 for us to come together. So we have to adjust. Can I, can I hear an amen out there? You know what I'm saying? 
Now, I want to land the plane of this message uh, with this next one. We're not just making, you know, what kind of commitment? And now I want to get biblical. I'm going to use spiritual language. It's called a covenant. The world is, you know, they've let go of a lot of things. But it's more than even a commitment. It's a particular kind of commitment. The biblical word for it is covenant. Everybody say covenant. Covenant. And I wanted to say that covenant love, what is that? Um, it is sacrificial love. The world has their own idea, and it's kind of all about you and making you happy, and your world revolves around you, and if it isn't working, you trade it in, you get the new model, the new relationship, the new whatever, and they, they do serial relationships, marriages, whatever else. But here is covenant love. It's about making sacrifices. It's not a casual covenant, nor is it a convenient covenant. Biblically, it's called a blood covenant. It literally covenant, the word covenant means sacrifice. We celebrate once a month our marriage as the bride to the bridegroom for eternity. The two shall be one. We're one with Christ, and we share it in communion, and it's all about the blood that he shed for us on the cross. Covenant, covenant love is a very deep theological term, a blood covenant. By the way, did you know this? All the places where the Hebrew word covenant is used in the Bible, which is the foundation even for the New Testament and the New Covenant, do you know what the Hebrew word covenant means? It means to cut. It means to cut. In the Old Testament, it meant cutting and the shedding of blood of animals who were our substitute so that we could be forgiven and spared or the children of God. In the new covenant, it's Jesus who becomes our lamb who was cut from head to toe on the cross, who shed his blood, gave his life sacrificially in his commitment to us. Very, very deep, very powerful. Even in our modern English language, we have a phrase that you, I'm sure you've heard many times, blood is thicker than water. There's something about blood. You know, when, again, in the Garden of Eden, the very first murder in the Bible, Cain killed his brother Abel. And God goes, hey, Cain, where is your brother? And Cain's response, am I my brother's keeper? And he had killed his brother. And do you know what God then said to Cain? What did you do, Cain, for your brother's blood cries to me from the ground? There's something about blood. Even in our modern, you know, so many TV shows are about, you know, the murder and who did it and where were they and they thought they had it hid and it was buried and then they go on and go, the blood remains. The blood is there. The blood still cries out. They scrub it. They try to clean it and cleanse it. They can't get rid of it. Did you know in the book of Leviticus, God said the life of the flesh is in the blood? It's very deep, very powerful. I know that recently there are some very famous people who got in big trouble because they were doing stuff they shouldn't have done for their kids. So I know, and that's wrong, and they're paying for that, and, and you know, I pray for them, 
But, but I want to just bring this out. All of us at times, when your kids, because they're blood and you love them, what you wouldn't do for them, what you wouldn't sacrifice for them, even sometimes do crazy things for them because they are your blood. So now I'm telling you that when we have the commitment of the love of God and when God has sacrificed his son and when you are washed in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, Nothing is more deep or powerful, supernatural, or profound than the covenant relationship we have with Christ and forgiveness because of his blood. And it's that same kind of blood, commitment, sacrifice. It's not all about me that I am to learn as a husband to be a model of Christ to my wife, to give up, to sacrifice, to let go. It's not about me and to love her and bless her and honor her and encourage her and wash her, the cleansing, the washing of the water of the Word, and so also the bride. You know, as an example of Christ and the unity and union, it's a mutual love and commitment toward one another. It's a blood covenant. It's a sacrificial love. So we basically, look, you know, Vicki and I have had debates. We've had arguments. There's been times we've been so mad at each other, and, you know, one walks out the door, and, and then you come back, and then the other one walks out the door, and then you come back, and you're like, but we made a commitment, and divorce is not an option. We're committed. What are we going to do? Where are we going to go? Then we got to work this out. That's what blood covenant sacrificial love is and what it does. I want to close with this last scripture, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Let's read this scripture out loud together. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. I I can see what Paul is thinking as he is describing this deep commitment that Christ makes his home within your heart how wide, how long, how high, how deep. He's thinking of the love of Jesus and that that's our model, that's our example, that's what love is, that's what love does. It's not about me, but it's about me humbling myself and honoring the commitment that I have made. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.